This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, we pay a tribute to our dear colleague Anne Bannerclough, who died earlier this month. Gregor Campbell reports on World War II coast watchers. Judy Southworth tells us about an habitual female confidence trickster who married another woman. And we hear about a Japanese river captain. And Bill Southworth looks at the career of one of our great local cricketers, Bert Sutcliffe. Anne Barraclough wrote and presented stories for this program over the past four years. Sadly, she died earlier this month of cancer while working right up to the end. As a tribute to Anne, here are excerpts from some of her past stories. One of the kindest people I met in my younger years was Dr W.A. Anderson of Queenstown, then a retired former Queenstown general practitioner who would act as a locum on the rare occasions when my then-husband, a young graduate doing a two-year locum, would have to go to Dunedin for the day. I was a young mother of three young children who all shared the same bedroom. One day, the baby had finally settled, but toddler's sister was prancing from bed to bed, defiantly ignoring my hissing from the doorway. Finally, I reached in, grabbed her arm and dragged her out. Her wrist swelled up dramatically. Extremely embarrassed, I phoned Dr. Anderson, who visited the house. He was kindness himself, dispelling my guilt and discomfort, assuring me the wrist was not broken and that this was a very common injury. It became obvious that Dr. Anderson was held in high esteem and affection by the locals. He and his second wife, Molly, lived in a lovely old villa near the heart of town. Anne had a history degree and was very aware that the COVID epidemic had a devastating predecessor. The flu pandemic that emerged in November 1918 was more virulent than any recorded before or since, killing more than 15 million people worldwide, 8,600 in New Zealand. It had a sudden onset, rapid progression, often with pneumonic complications to death, sometimes within hours of onset, the patient often turning black shortly before death. It attacked most ferociously healthy young adult males aged 30 to 34 and females aged 25 to 29 and was seven times more devastating among the Maori, wiping out 4% of the Maori population. Coal mining districts, institutions and military camps were worst affected. The Spanish flu epidemic started in Dunedin on November 4, 1918 and was finished by the 20th of December. The total admissions for Dunedin Hospital was 701, of which 530 were pneumonic. 172 died. However, Dunedin had the least severe epidemic of New Zealand's four main cities. Many of the flu victims are buried in the Northern Cemetery. As a 17-year-old student, Anne took a holiday job in a mental institution. Several of my Dunedin friends had been working at Cherry Farm or Orokanui Home during their school holidays, and I enthusiastically joined them. 
no qualifications or CV needed, just a cursory medical with the university doctor, Archie Douglas, and an interview with the Cherry Farm social worker. And we had our bags packed and went out to Cherry Farm to collect our uniforms. Two or three of us nurses would take some of the old girls who were physically up to it by the arms, line dancing style, and get them singing and dancing, knees up Mother Brown, hands, knees and bump daisy, long way to Tipperary, you are my sunshine, and other old favourites of theirs. They loved it, laughing and singing along, with the onlookers joining in too, even those who seldom showed much sign of life. Our shifts often were quite late. One evening, returning from our evening meal, I picked up a little ginger kitten that was playing outside the villa. As I walked through one of the open dormitories where the ladies were in their beds lining the walls on either side, they all clamoured to have the wee kitten to stroke. As I went from bed to bed, letting them stroke it in turn, I heard what I thought was a ghost. A creaky, scrapey voice behind me croaked, Oh, a dear wee kitty. I took the kitten to this dear little lady who hadn't spoken for years, and I'm sure I would have shed one or two tears in the privacy of my room that night. That was our researcher, writer, presenter, Anne Barraclough, who died on November the 10th, and all of us here will miss her greatly. The World War II coast watchers in the Pacific had the dangerous job of recording Japanese naval movements. They were often alone or in small numbers, which made them very vulnerable. Gregor Campbell has been looking at the fate of one Otago man. The Pacific island of Betio in the Tarawa Atoll of Kiribati is a very long way from the town of Middlemarch. In the sand of Betio lies the body of young Arthur Clarence Heenan, post office radio operator and son of a Strathtyre farmer, whose name is commemorated in Middlemarch Cemetery. He was one of 17 New Zealanders who were stationed on nearby Pacific Islands in 1940 to watch and report on shipping movements, with German raiders the most likely items of interest, though nearby Japanese bases were also kept in mind. Things changed after the Pearl Harbour attack in December 1941, when Japanese forces began moving south, when Japanese forces occupied their islands in September 1942, the coast watchers were rounded up and taken to Batio. They were tied for days at a time to coconut trees, awaiting interrogation by the Japanese commander, then used as forced labour. On October 15, an American naval task force attacked Batio from the sea and air, and the prisoners were executed in retaliation. Five civilians captured on Batio were also executed. Although known by the New Zealand government, the news of the murders was suppressed on orders from up high, but rumours filtered through to the home front, and many people believe that the shooting of Japanese prisoners at Featherston four months later was in retaliation for it. The older brother of one of the Batio victims was a camp guard, and he did most of the shooting. Whether he knew of his brother's fate is not known. When American forces took the Tarawa Atoll in November 1943, there was no trace of the 17 coast watchers on the small island where nearly 7,000 people had died in the battle. 
but Kiribati eyewitnesses were able to supply details of what had occurred in September 1942. In 1944, Arthur Heenan and the other civilian coast watchers were retrospectively added to the army rolls so their families could claim war pensions, although excavations continue to repatriate remains from Batillo, those of the Coast Watchers have not yet been identified. Amy Bock was an habitual con artist who operated around New Zealand in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was finally in Otago where she pulled off her most audacious deception, posing as a male and marrying another woman. This report from Judy Southworth. If you mention the name Amy Bock to an Otago person, they're likely to say, wasn't she the woman who posed as a bloke and married a woman? And they'd be quite right. Deceit was a way of life for Amy Bock, and today we're looking into her many deceitful practices. She was born in Tasmania in 1859, the oldest of four children. Some of her grandparents had been transported criminals. The family moved to Victoria in 1867. Her mother was a delusional person, among other things stating that she was Lady Macbeth and was institutionalised in 1872, dying three years later. Not a good start for Amy. Amy, described by a school friend as clever and popular, was an accomplished pianist, horsewoman and actor, the latter skill proving very useful in her chosen deceits. At 17, in 1876, she was sent to boarding school in Melbourne for two years and to earn money for her family, taught at a rural school. She taught for the next ten years, but was frequently absent, claiming illness. She was also found to have falsified a school attendance role in order to make it appear that more children attended so that her salary would increase. She also got into debt to avoid or delay various payments and wrote letters to creditors, one posing as her sister Ethel, stating that Amy had died. In 1884, she was arrested and charged with obtaining goods under false pretenses, but was eventually discharged without conviction after an editorial in The Age and an article in the local Gypsum paper cited her mother's death in an asylum and her reported uncontrollable behaviour from childhood. Her father persuaded her to emigrate to Auckland with him and his new wife. She worked as a governess in Otahuhu. In May of 1888, she was back in court on a charge of obtaining money under false pretenses. She was discharged into the care of a local storekeeper. She next moved to Littleton, again as a governess, where, obtaining goods on credit, she travelled to Wellington, was arrested there and sentenced to imprisonment at Addington Prison, her first stint in prison. On release, she moved back to Wellington and again obtained goods by false pretenses. She also worked at Otaki Boys College, where she used some of her ill-gotten gains to buy boots for the pupils. Two years later, on further fraud charges, she was sentenced to six months at the Cavisham Industrial School in Dunedin. The governor there offered her a position, but found her to be engineering her escape through correspondence with a fictitious aunt. The following year, having set herself up as a music teacher, she was back in court for receiving goods under false pretenses. Two months imprisonment followed. In 1889, one year on, she moved to Akaroa, again working as a governess, but was soon back in court for larceny and false pretenses. 
six months sentencing followed. After serving her time, she returned to Dunedin, but employed as a housekeeper, attempted to pawn her employer's assets and left for Geraldine, where she was again arrested. This time, her sentence was three years. After serving most of the sentence, she was released and settled in Timaru. Further false pretenses followed, along with pawning the property of others. Another month in prison followed. Having made contact with the Salvation Army, she moved to Oamaru at their invitation, where further deceits took place, claiming a substantial inheritance, borrowing from furniture sellers, and defrauding a Salvation Army member of 30 shillings. She left for Palmerston, where she was apprehended and imprisoned again, her eighth imprisonment. On release, she was sent to the Catholic-run Magdala Home in Christchurch, being a place for fallen women. There are no records of her time there. In 1901, she worked under a false name as a housekeeper in Waimate, hoping to avoid the large debts she'd accumulated. The following year, 1902, in Christchurch, she befriended a well-known landscape gardener and moved into his house. Through him, she met and defrauded investors by obtaining money for a fictitious poultry farm at Mount Roskill. For this, she was imprisoned for two years. Discharged in 1904, she found work in Rakaia under a false name and was soon charged with attempting to alter a cheque and served two and a half years for this. On her discharge, she travelled to Dunedin, again this time with Pollard's Lilliputian Opera Company. She committed a number of small frauds, presenting herself as a patron of the company. In 1908, still in Dunedin, and again under an assumed name, she became a housekeeper. At Christmas, left in charge of the house, she set out to obtain loans using the furniture there as collateral. A warrant was issued for her arrest, but she'd disappeared. And now we come to the period most of us have heard of, her invention of the name Percival Leonard Carroll Redwood. Under this name, she portrayed herself as an affluent Canterbury sheep farmer and became a popular guest at a respected boarding house in Dunedin. She travelled to Port Molyneux, Balclutha now, and here wooed Agnes Ottaway. She furthered this impersonation through letters purported to be from lawyers and the fictitious Redwood family. Bock as Redwood and Agnes married in 1909 at an elaborate ceremony attended by about 200 guests. Bock apologised on behalf of the fictional Redwood family for their absence. She ran up debts prior to the wedding, and the bride's family gave her a week to settle them. Unable to trace a Redwood family, the bride's family friends reported her to the police. She was soon identified and arrested. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years' hard labour and declared an habitual criminal. The marriage was annulled. The events of her marriage were widely written about here and in Australia, and an auction of the wedding presents drew a large crowd. Postcards and poems of the events followed. Her prison behaviour was exemplary, and on her release, she took up a position as a housekeeper at Mokau in Taranaki. She also assisted the teacher at the local school. She married Charles Christofferson, a Swedish immigrant, and because of this was granted an unconditional discharge from her probation. However, the marriage broke up, and in 1917, 
she appeared in the new Plymouth court on further fraud charges. She was fined and lived on in Mokau. In 1925, she moved to Hamilton and worked for a time as a cook in a Salvation Army home. In 1931, 14 years on, she was again charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. At this time, she was described as a faded old lady in a dove-grey alpaca cloth costume with a drooping hat of lace straw. She pleaded guilty and was given a two-year probationary sentence. And although initially at the Salvation Army home under supervision, it's not known how she spent her final years. She died in Auckland in 1943 and was buried in an unmarked grave in the Pukekohe Public Cemetery. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. In the 19th century, navigating the Clutha River was an important part of getting goods in and agricultural products out. Gregor Campbell has been researching the period, and he discovered one of the key river captains came from an unusual part of the world. In 1863, the first river steamer to ply the Clutha made its way as far as Tuapeka Mouth. It was the SS Tuapeka, and the shallow draft vessel left Port Chalmers at 11 on a still night and a fairly quiet sea, sighting the nuggets next morning. Captain Murray was an experienced riverboat man who'd skippered in North America and South Australia, and steam navigation of the Clutha was projected to extend eventually as far as Lake Wanaka. Jetties were in fact built at Beaumont and Teviot, or Roxburgh. The Tuapeka worked the river for 11 years until hitting a snag and sinking at Kaitangata. By that time there were other steamers on the Clutha, mostly taking freight from the now-vanished Port Molyneux, the deep-water port at the mouth of the Clutha, where goods were transshipped between seagoing vessels and the shallow-draft river steamers. Passengers were also taken on at the port, a popular summer holiday excursion from Dunedin being taken south down the coast and around the Inch Clutha with picnicking before going north and home again. The mining of coal at Kaitangata assured a ready supply of fuel. The 1878 flood which made Port Molyneux unusable was not the end of the river steamers. Their trade had already been changed by the arrival near Balclutha of the railway from Dunedin, which was more reliable and cheaper than coastal shipping. What really did for the paddle steamer trade was the building of decent roads and the arrival of trucking beginning in the 1920s. The last steamer, the Clutha, was launched in 1910 and ended its run in 1939. A remarkable personality in the Clutha steamer trade was Captain Kazuyuki Kehoye Tsukigawa, a Japanese sailor who jumped ship at Dunedin in 1895 after an argument with the captain and worked on a Clydevale farm before working on the steamer Clyde. He was made master of the Clutha on the vessel's arrival and became a New Zealand citizen in 1907. In 1913, he married fellow Salvation Army member Adelaide Clark. They had three children. Under the first Labour government, he became an unofficial trade representative for New Zealand on his visits to Japan. But his birthplace led to his spending time under house arrest in Balclutha after the Pacific War began in 1941. His neighbours never questioned his loyalty, however, and one of his sons was decorated for his courage in the European theatre of war. I am the hopefully loyal and courageous Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. 
New Zealand's cricket team made it to the T20 World Cup final last week and hit up a great score, only to fall at the final post when its bowling let it down. And this got us to thinking about great cricketers who played for Otago in the past, and none stood higher than Bert Sutcliffe, the champion batsman. Bill Southworth has been looking at his career. Bert Sutcliffe's ashes were scattered on the playing field at Carisbrook, but a recent search for them on the redeveloped site has failed to find them. More of that later. After serving in North Africa and Italy in World War II, Bert's teaching career brought him to Dunedin. Tall and good-looking, fair-haired and very fit, and batting in the classic manner, with clean cuts to the boundary, he soon stood out in Otago as someone headed for greatness. His 197 and 198 for Otago against the 1946 MCC tourists led to his first test cap a week later. In the test against the MCC with Walter Hadley, he put on 133 for the first wicket, playing well until caught off Bedster for 58. He had launched his international career as the most outstanding New Zealand batsman in the immediate post-war period. Sutcliffe is described in Barclay's World of Cricket as one of New Zealand's most productive and cultured batsmen. He is also noted to be moving backwards and forwards across the stumps more than many batsmen in his time, like Jeff Boycott, which lays the foundation for more modern and contemporary batsmen since the 1980s to deal with fast bowlers. He was also an excellent fielder, in his element whether at short leg, in the slips or at cover. When Hadley's Kiwis visited England in 1949, it was a large degree, thanks to Bert Sutcliffe, that the team came away with four good draws. He scored 2,627 runs, including 423 at a marvellous average of 60.4 in the tests. Only the Australian Don Bradman, with 2,960 in 1930, had a higher aggregate on a tour of England. Burt made two triple hundreds in his career with 355 for Otago against Auckland and 385 against Canterbury. The score of 385 stood as a record highest score by a left-handed batsman until 1994 when Brian Lara hit 501. From then until 1965 when he made his third tour of England, Sutcliffe played 42 tests making 2,727 runs with an average of 40.1 and a highest score of 230, not out, against India at Delhi in 1955-56, which was then a test record for New Zealand. He captained New Zealand in both tests against the visiting West Indies in 1951-52 and again for the last two tests in South Africa in 53-54. Playing for New Zealand against India at New Delhi in 1955-56, he scored 230 not out, which was then a test record for New Zealand. Although he was slightly off form in South Africa, there were still times, Wisden's Cricketers' Almanac noted, when he played in a manner to live in the memory of spectators. The second test at Ellis Park, Johannesburg, became one of them. Struck on the head by a bumper from Neil Adcock, he gallantly returned, heavily bandaged and pale, to score 80 not out in a total of 187, adding 33 for the last wicket with fast bowler Bob Blair in a partnership charged with emotion and sympathy for the New Zealanders. Sutcliffe later pasted board a bowling for 196, his only century in South Africa, 
But on the way home, he scored centuries against West Australia, South Australia and Victoria. It has been suggested that his head injury at Johannesburg subsequently affected his test batting, but he remained a genuine force in New Zealand cricket. Though he had been absent from tests for five seasons, at the age of 41, he was included in the 1965 side to tour India, Pakistan and England. He made his last Test 100 at the Eden Gardens with an unbeaten 151. Bert Sutcliffe was New Zealand's first Sportsman of the Year in 1949, and in 1990 he was selected in the inaugural list for the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame. After Sutcliffe retired from cricket, he became a coach. New Zealand Cricket now awards the Bert Sutcliffe Medal annually to those it deems to have made an outstanding service to cricket in New Zealand over a lifetime. Bert died of emphysema in 2001, aged 77, and his ashes were scattered on Carisbrook, the scene of many of his famous performances. Later that year, in a private ceremony, the remainder were buried in a small ceramic urn. Otago Cricket approached the Sutcliffe family in 2010 with the idea of relocating his ashes to the new premier ground at the University Oval. The family agreed, but the ashes could not be found. The Dunedin City Council had sold the site to Calder Stewart in 2013. The buildings on the site were demolished the next year, and Placemakers has now begun construction of a new store on the site. If the ashes are on the site, they would have to be buried very deep. Although it's unlikely, the builders are aware of the situation and are keeping an eye out for the ashes. Bert Sungary has said his father's ashes proved as elusive as bowlers found taking his wicket. It was Dad's wish that he had loved to have his ashes scattered at Carisbrook. We understood at the time that no one could guarantee the tenure of Carisbrook. Of course, we were disappointed when we heard it was no longer going to be the premier ground. I'd love to think Carisbrook will stay as some kind of recreational park or something like that. The thought of Dad being buried under a whole lot of concrete in a car park was why we thought about moving his ashes. But, at the end of the day, that's where Dad wanted his ashes to be laid. I'm grateful to Wisden's Cricketers' Almanac for much of this information. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters. This program has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org. NZ. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.